I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. My special guest today is Dr. Philip Butler. He's an assistant professor at Isle School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's the founder of the Seeker Project, a distinctly black conversational artificial intelligence with mental health capacities. He's also building a distinct black AI interface combining machine learning and psychotherapeutic systems. Now, he's going to unpack all of that for us. Now, I should let you know that I typically have to school Philip when it comes to hip hop, but today he's going to school us in terms of race and AI. Philip, thanks for uh, joining me today. Oh man, uh, Doctor Penn, this is a <clears throat> it's an honor to be uh, to be here today. I'm, I'm I, I have to I don't know if I if I can accept the schooling me on hip hop thing. You know, I, I know we have our conversations about it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm definitely looking forward to to chopping it up today, though. <laughs> well, for the sake of argument, we'll just say I'm right. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I know I really appreciate you joining us. This this is a really hot topic, but before you unpack your workforce, just give us a sense of how you got into this, right? Why AI and race? What led you to this? No, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think it, it kind of started when I started shifting my gears in my <clears throat> in my doctoral studies. When I was, um, uh, I went to, when I arrived at Claremont School of Theology, I initially did my work. I was coming there to study neuroscience and spirituality, like kind of broadly, that was it. Uh, but I also, you know, the bookends of my coursework were, you know, Trayvon Martin um, and then Sandra Bland in 2015. And so I, throughout that time, I had to reimagine, you know, what it was going to, what my work was going to be like, who I was going to be speaking to, you know, what I was going to do for the folks who claimed me. Um, and so this is where I started looking at technology because I feel like technology is, is, it is pervasive and increasingly pervasive. <laughs> we're not going to get away from it in this way. And then I uh, started thinking about, again, this kind of a futuristic approach to things. And so well, <clears throat> where I do like AI and stuff like that out of is at the intersection of neuroscience, technology, spirituality, and blackness. Uh, uh, and so this kind of led me to thinking about things uh, from kind of this cognitive science perspective. Um, and then when when I was writing my dissertation after the, the kind of written piece, I did a mobile app uh, as like the second half for the psychological study. And so just kind of getting more into that and thinking about the future iterations of what this is where kind of the turn to, uh, to AI more specifically came. And then, you know, as things you know, kind of panned out and, and started kind of delving a little bit deeper, this is where it's kind of where we are today. So when I think of AI, you know, lots of things come to mind, lots of movies. I, I start with 2001, A Space Odyssey and move on from there, right? I'll yeah, be yeah. back. Right. So I kind of think about it this way, but tell us a bit more. Help us dig a little deeper. What exactly is AI? I mean, in a in a very simplistic uh, <laughs> way, uh, AI is really just kind of uh, predictive math, predictive mathematics. Um, and so that that may sound scarier to some people, but in a, I think in some ways it, it helps to take some of the some of some of some of the magic out of it right like uh when we talk about this predictive mathematics what we're doing is we're taking previous or historical information and we are uh, organizing it in such a way that we can attempt to predict 
you know, what happens and, you know, whether it be like, the, you know, coming weeks or, you know, coming months or just kind of, uh, you know, things down the line. Um, and this is, again, more kind of like where data science and machine learning or data science and artificial intelligence more broadly begin to meet. Uh, but nevertheless, we're really just applying mathematics to historical data in order to infer something in the future. So in terms of AI, what do folks typically get wrong? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so I think and when people get wrong, I think is this like, I think there's this leap, right? When, like when you talked about in terms of like the space odyssey, I know when I post stuff on Facebook, sometimes people uh, get under the comments, they like scream out like, uh, um, what's it, uh, Skynet, right? From Terminator, Skynet, 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 right? And so uh, thinking about these kind of uh, dystopian futures where, artificial intelligence and the different types of um, machines that it that you know are are benefiting from its software are are in many ways kind of taking over the world right i think uh, one of the more recent um uh, views or not views or examples of this would be like ultron if you're a marvel fan right like you know tony hawk and the avengers they make you know this particular uh, mind um, and, and somehow it sees all the bad that people have done <clears throat> or that humans have done more specifically. And uh, and then it attempts to make its own decision that humans, you know, don't deserve to live. And so, you know, they go back and then they make another version of it and they put some guardrails on it <laughs> and then they get vision. And so you have vision and Ultron being two kind of um, diametrically opposed versions of what AI can be in terms of this um, this almost hum- human loving and, and not necessarily assistant, but kind of. Uh, thinking within the parameters of goodness, uh, uh, given the information that has been provided, and then you have this uh, this more uh, destructive AI paternalistic approach, to a, uh, paternalistic embodiment of AI that is, that will somehow be, uh, recognize the the lack of utility of, of human life and just the, the nihilism <laughs> around human action and the ways in which humans have treated one another, let alone the planet. And so I think people are afraid of what uh, what may come, but I think it's also good to recognize in, in many ways that uh, regardless of whichever uh, version of AI manifests itself in the future or even in the present, this is not something that will happen by happenstance, right? So while there is this, there is a phenomenon called the black box where, you know, inside the mathematics and on you know in between the mathematics and the outcome uh the machines are doing something that not everybody's completely aware of and so that is i think where it can be scary to some people but at the same time the there are like some very intentional things that people can do right well by making a you know good clean data sets by making diverse data sets by intentionally skewing towards historically marginalized marginalized communities um by you know kind of paying attention to what the weights are within the model and you know what they're choosing to emphasize um in terms of what they're modeling as opposed to kind of focusing on reasserting historical you know uh, mores and um and disproportionate ways of, of extending kind of sociality kind of onto people so that I, I read that as a somewhat optimistic perspective on this, but let me take the gloom and doom, please, orientation on it, right? Yeah. So, if what you're saying is correct, this work is still being done by people, right? Very and people so. are screwed up, right? So, <laughs> how do folks doing this work bracket their social sensibilities, right? Bracket their biases in ways that allow AI to do work beyond that kind of nonsense. You see what I mean? 
Yeah, no, I think, and so I think what you're, you're you're curious about is how how can we make machines that do not replicate the current the current um, the current social reality, and how do we make machines that do not um, uh, exacerbate the current social reality, right? And so I, I think this is I think this is primarily the question of our time when it comes to artificial intelligence, right? And so you have uh, wonderful people <clears throat> doing this research, you know, about, uh, such as like Joy Balawini and um, Timothy Gabru or Sophia Noble, right? Uh, at the same time, right? Tell a lot us a of, little bit. Who, who are those folks? No, nah, great question. So, uh, Joe Balamini and, and Timothy Gabru uh, were the were the researchers that were uh, that led the Gender Shades paper. So, Gender Shades very uh, just very quickly is a paper that demonstrates that the larger algorithms from like you know Facebook and and Google and, and, and Amazon do a poor job of seeing dark skinned faces and more specifically mm. do a p- even poor job of seeing dark skinned women or female faces. Right. And so they, they showed the, um, the, you know, the, the disparities within, uh, the performance of these models. And, you know, they were able to kind of convince these companies to go back and, and reassess what they did it. So, I mean, I think they went from like really, really bad to like the best was like 70 something percent. And so even though that's still pretty poor compared to how they're, they're able to recognize lighter skin faces if in the eighties and the nineties, I think if I'm not wrong. Um, so, and I could be, so forgive me if I am. Uh, but and then you have Sophia Noble, you know, who do, who does her work on, <clears throat> on the internet more broadly in terms of like how internet searches, uh, they have, they are skewed. They're 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 skewed towards sexism and and racism in the ways in which like if when you start typing something in, if you look at uh, some of the the uh, suggestions that populate underneath what you're attempting to search, some of these things can be um, can reassert uh, harmful uh, suppositions about specific people in certain contexts. And again, this this is still kind of like uh, the work that you know I think they've recently. So there's a couple of examples of which AI kind of goes haywire. And by haywire, it pretty much does what it's supposed to. Because if they're using data sets from like Reddit, which is highly problematic in terms of the types of language that Reddit users mm-hmm. engage in, let alone uh, like the, the racism and sexism that's embedded within these framings. And they, if they're training the model on that, then how can they expect the, the models to regurgitate anything other than what it's being trained on? And so just like a child in this way, you know, if you, you teach a child to, you know, to, to view people poorly and to repeat you know, um, harmful dialogue and language and, 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 and concepts, right. Then it's going to, it's going to regurgitate these similar things given the chance. And so this is what the, this is why it's important, right. For artificial intelligence in this particular kind of, um, this particular stage of its development, right. To be, to begin to, uh, look at more, like more, uh, approaches to, uh, to, to what it means to be a person and what it means to take, uh, data and information from people, right? So, like for me, uh, like you, so you know that I'm like I'm not necessarily a humanist, right? I'm more of like a posthumanist, and so like for me, I distinguish mm-hmm. between humans and people, right? So, like for me, humans are this this um, this kind of child of the enlightenment, this universal construction, this very static approach to, to understanding what what it means to be. For me, but con- uh, in contrast, a person is a local and complex thing, and so I think we need to be taking seriously what it means to take information from people and and not necessarily create machines for one specific demographic, hoping everyone uh, kind of fits into that demographic, and then begin to make machines right for for these localized contexts and the and the various peoples that present themselves in these different spaces. So, how do we guard against? bias in the production of AI, right? So how do you, so there's what ought to happen. The Mm -hmm. the question for me is how do we safeguard development in a way that 
makes that the case, right? So how do we move from, we ought to do this in a way that eliminates bias, that isn't, that doesn't target AI to a particular community, but makes it a more expansive and more useful um, uh, possibility across communities. Right? How do we move from the ought to this happening? No, that's an even, and I think that's a, a better question. I mean, you may or may not like my answer, but I, for me, I don't think that we're going to get rid of bias. And so I think we ought to be, we, be, we ought to be as biased as possible. And so to me, the guardrails come up when we're intentionally biased towards the world that we want. Like when people say, oh, we're, we're working towards making a better world, but we're still doing, engaging in the same practices, then um, I tend to be skeptical of, of not only their intentions, but the ways in which they actually, you know, are, are going about it. And so, um, for for me and the work that we do over at ILIF, right, and and, our, and the AI Institute is we are actually intentionally intentionally skewing towards the ethics, right? That that we that we say that we want, right? So if we want a world that care, that cares more about uh, looking, making sure that folks of, of darker skin hues and, and, spe and specifically seeing that darker skin women are, are are seen by these computers, and if we are if we care about how these machines understand people, right? So like there's a there's a, a concept called a data mill. Where you uh, you have about like say a, a team of like three people looking at a picture, um, and if the three if two of the three people agree on what the picture is, regardless of what that picture, um, regardless of what that picture actually is, then that's what the picture is labeled as. And so um, if if everyone who looks a certain way is labeled a certain way through these data mills, and it reemphasizes or, or it digitally codifies. The negative presuppositions, right, and historical uh, images of, of folks, right, then, then essentially, once it gets embedded in the machines and, and through the processes, it can do nothing but regurgitate that. And so, one of the things that we're working on is a, a self-identifier, self-labeled approach. And so, when we're asking people to engage in a consent-based model to to uh, contribute to data sets, we want them to also label themselves; so they don't get mislabeled by other people. Which ultimately, we hope is is something that will allow machines to see people as they see themselves, but also, right, will then uh, will then in some ways force the people on the other end who are reading these machines uh, to to uh, to view the people as the people who have intended themselves to be seen. I think there are intentional ways to guardrail against this by specifically skewing towards the ethic that we want. But I think it's also it also is going to have to kind of uh, have something to do with policy, right? Like I, I know in America, industry in many cases leads uh, the leads the the conversation around what ends up kind of becoming policy. But I think this artificial intelligence is is too much embedded in our everyday life and it will be even more so in such a way that it's going to require a much larger conversation about what it means to think about this ethically what it think what it means for this to uh to to create the world we say we want as opposed to kind of again recapitulating the the same that we have had historically deal with So you talked a bit about face recognition, but what are some of the other ways in which bias is represented? Yes, uh, through language, right? So I'm, I don't know if <laughs> I don't I don't know how uh, how you communicate on social media, but I, I it, but some folks you know kind of say things in jest, 
and you know those same things can be kind of um, you know end them up in like Facebook jail or Twitter jail. And but what we're finding right from the information is that the majority of things that find people in Twitter jail or have their their profiles be being labeled as something that is outside the realm of of what is considered acceptable thus all fall within the lines of things that may be considered like culturally kind of uh, black. Uh, vernacular or black ways of relating to one another right so like people black folks are who uh, are being uh kind of in the same way kind of disproportionately um singled out uh suggesting that their language and their ways of relating to one another are harmful right or against community standards but you know and, and conversely right you'll have examples where um you, you you know you kind of have like these alt-right groups or specifically white supremacist groups who are have been allowed to you know kind of maintain themselves in these same spaces right and engage in dialogue and engage in rhetoric that you know black people would consider dangerous harmful and threatening uh but you know the the bots within these larger companies like you know like facebook or meta you know uh you know twitter so on and so forth they don't necessarily label those as problematic and so they don't have the same uh, kind of social social media repercussions right as uh, language in this way, and so again, we brought up in the brought up in the, the Reddit discussion, and so this is, I think, again, why you know things like black literature or Chicano literature, so on and so forth, these other contextual modes of of of, of vernacular, right, as they are presented in a written form, can be used, right, to 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 broaden these language models, so that when they look at sentiment analysis, which is basically determining if something's positive or ne- negative, right, is it allows for kind of a broader reach of what may be considered. Uh, you know, uh, acceptable, let alone something that that could that could be discriminated against. I, I want to go back to something you said because it, it keeps popping up for me, and that is the idea of emphasizing bias in this work, but emphasizing a bias that helps us rethink diversity in more productive and inclusive ways. Uh, that is in intriguing to me. And so I, I want to push that a bit. Let's drill down a bit. I'm wondering what are the what are the sorts of values you want to emphasize or, or celebrate through that process? Yeah, no, I think so. That, I think that's a great question. Right. So I think so this is um, so I think this is where we start looking at equity as a real thing. Right. Because I think, you know, when you have something like a, a broadly diverse uh, data set, then you could say, okay, now everybody's being seen. All right, great. But then what do we do then with the ways in which these, uh, these machines and these technologies have been used as carceral agents, right? As means of surveillance, so on and so forth. And so in some ways we're, to do this in an equitable way, we're going to have to kind of overemphasize, right? The, the placement and the recognition of these faces, uh, in a, in ways that allow for them to, to, uh, to, to be safe, right? And, uh, and to maintain their safety. Um, but at the same time, that's also going to require a bit more trust and, and engagement from uh, these same communities. What do I mean by that? Right. So it kind of very plainly um, in order to. So one of, one of the one of the the I guess which is also kind of speaks to what you're asking. Right. So I think we're, one, of, one of my hopes is that we move from something like prediction. Right. So if we base if we baseline AI as predictive mathematics, one of the things I'd like to move away from is precision. I mean, it's, it's prediction and moving and moving towards precision. And precision is not so much uh, about targeting and triangulating so much as it as it is kind of like um, recognizing and uh, and then providing the space around around what has been recognized. Here's an example of what we're talking about. And so like where, where I think a gentleman was misidentified 
was said to have committed uh, a crime when he was doing something somewhere else in like another part of the state. And so, but in, in order to engage in precision, we'd have to kind of do something in terms of like, what does it mean for this person to be a part of this city and a part of the city's um, uh, data, but also be a part of this neighborhood's data. And then also recognize that these data sets are localized to these regions. And if this person moves, then he can, he or she or they, right, can opt into moving their, you know, their biometric data to the new state that they're in or the new neighborhood that they're in, right? And so recognizing that, you know, you can't say that this person was in New Hampshire if they're, you know, if they're living in, you know, somewhere like Denver or something like that. And also looking at, you know, something as simple as, you know, their, um, you know, their plane tickets and travel stubs or just recognizing that they're not on the move. So there's no way that they're going to be somewhere else that you can misidentify them, indict them on this and then, you know, kind of put them into a system that is not going to benefit them anyways. And so things like this going to require a bit more trust, a bit more engagement. But at the same time, if we're talking about being precise, it's going to uh, move towards something that gives people the opportunity to to be in conversational machines as opposed to being at the at the, the um, uh, at the whim of machines. You know, I'm not the dude shaking my fist at technology, but I do want to ask this question. It, it, it seems to me both secular and religious folks on some level understand community as a value, right? How one gets to community, how one thinks about the constitution of community will differ. But I think for secular folks, it's a heightened sensibility concerning community. This is what we have. Are there ways in which AI can or does undercut the importance of community, right? Kind of relationships between people? Nah, sure. It sure does. And I, and I think, but I also think this is, so I think this is like the two-edged sword piece, right? Or the two sides of the same coin. Um, and I think it also goes back to prediction. Like prediction is about control. Like if we, if we go back to like being able to, you know, this the mathematical element, like people are afraid of uncertainty and, or humans more specifically are afraid of uncertainty. Um, and as a result of this, prediction is is a is a tool that is employed right to make sure that they can control the variables and if they can't control all the variables they can at least know within the within the parameters of certain variables this is what we can suggest you know is going to take place or might happen or is a, or is in, has a greater likelihood of taking place over something else and so like for instance like the facebook algorithm or even Instagram's algorithm, right? Like you, people don't see all of their friends all the time. They only see a certain amount of people. There are, if you have a lot of Facebook friends, whether you actually talk to all of these people in real life, you know, there are certain people that you're just not going to be in conversation with. That's, I think this is one way we talk about this. Or just like, again, this prediction piece. If I have all the data I think I need to know about you, then I can also suggest I know you. And so there's a level of um, kind of like pseudo familiarity that can arise from this predictive mathematics. It's like, oh, I know this about your group. I know this about you and your behavior, so on and so forth. And so it, it does not allow for the type of curiosity and connection building that can take place when people are genuinely interested in one another. These are the things that can be uh, detrimental to this, right? But on the flip side, right, how do you then use this data to encourage curiosity? But how do you use this data, right, to better to better be in relationship with people, right? Like I think one of the projects we're imagining looks at taking people's information, like taking this self-labeled data, taking like these social 
um, social identifiers people have, right? And, and including it into like the augmented reality space, right? Augmented reality is the combination of, of like tangible reality and, and projected reality. And so if, if you walk into, say you walk into a, um, a grocery store and, you know, on your augmented reality device, say as your contact lens, you're able to see like who's in the store, you know, what are their, what are their belief systems? You know, what's, what are good topics to talk about? These are ways that you can actually, you know, uh, engage in better connection with people, or you can better, <laughs> better know how to protect yourself against the elements, i.e. the people that you, you know, if you're in a, in a, in a town that may not necessarily be, have to be the best environment for you, how do you stay safe? Stuff like that. And so I think there are, are multiple ways for this connection to take place, but I also, there are plenty of ways in which, you know, uh, technology and artificial intelligence can also create barriers between people's, um, relationships and, and, you know, the types of ways that they can, you know, be in touch with one another. Yeah, I want to stick with this for a minute, right? Because sure. I, I think often we, we assume a kind of physical dimension to community, right? These are the folks I hang with. Mm-hmm. But we've also understood for a very long time that community doesn't require physical engagement. It can simply be shared commitments, Right. These are the folks who share a certain set of commitments. They don't live anywhere near each other, never hang out physically, but they share these commitments. Are there ways in which and you mentioned Facebook and and Instagram. Are there ways in which this sort of technology, AI, is is encouraging, if not forcing yet another rethinking of what it means to be in community, what it means to be in relationship? what we assume we gain from these relationships, right? The, are there ways in which the truth of our self-presentation is altered by AI? So we become friends or members of community with folks we don't know, right? Because self-presentation is flexible, it's fluid. I guess the first thing I think about is like gaming communities, right? You know, where people have avatars that are not themselves, right? So like mm-hmm. people get to be, you know, quote unquote, who they want to be. They get to pick their gender. They get to pick their skin color. They get to pick, you know, what kind of species they are, you know, what kind of physical attributes they have, so on and so forth, right? And so um, I think this is like one of those elements, right? So, I mean, I think I think uh, HBO just came out with a documentary. It's like we met on, we met in virtual reality, right? And so this becomes one of those um, you know, spaces that people, you know, they get to, I don't say put on, um, mm-hmm. an appearance, but I, I think where they get to, um, deal with the ways that they feel as though they are without having to, uh, engage in some type of cosmetic, you know, kind of reconfiguration of, of their bodies while also connecting with people who are, you know, in the next room, let alone, you know, clear across the world. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, in, in this regard, gaming communities, as an example, become the ways in which the world shrinks. Um, but also they allow mm-hmm. for uh, this type of uh, dynamic approach to how one sees oneself and the ways in which people can um, reassess the utility of their relationships. Right. Like, if, you know, if. If you are if you're on a gaming team, right, you know, the, everyone plays a role. And so they they have their own, you know, kind of unique responsibility within, you know, within the within the click, so to speak. And so, you know, I think this there's definitely ways in which you reimagine. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, there are folks who, who are are excited about, you know, something like church in the metaverse, if that's your thing. Right. And so I'm, but I'm also like 
I'm very skeptical of the likelihood of people just ditching physical reality, you know, for the place like the metaverse entirely, right? Which is part of the reason why I, I kind of talk about this augmented space or this mixed reality space, because if you can <clears throat> successfully weave both types of realities together, then I think that you'll have a, you know, a, you'll, you'll be able to, to to have something I think a bit more likely to be used on a regular basis while simultaneously attempting to, you know, uh, augment or 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 heighten the ways that you know people experience either or, right? Because you know, if you're you know, say you're skiing down a mountain, you know, and, and they gamify where it's like, all right, if, instead of hitting all the flags, you know, you get points or so, you know, something like that. Like, there's there are ways to 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 make things more enjoyable. Let alone like if you go to the store and you buy healthy food, then somehow you're augmented reality avatar, you know, get stronger or, you know, looks a little bit better, you know, something like that. Ways that that, you know, add to the psychological element of what it means to be and then also be in a relationship with, with these people. So you you started out and you talked a bit about your your PhD training and and the connection between your thought process during that training and what was taking place in terms of anti-black racism in the nation. And and I want to use that as a way to get to the work you're doing. Tell us about the Seeker Project. When we started talking about the Seeker Project, I when I turned it into a chatbot, I was kind of training it on, you know, just kind of being able to talk. And I was talking to it, uh, and I was like, this kind of sounds a lot like me. And I was telling a buddy of mine at the gym, and he was like, man, maybe it's a black AI. And at that moment, I was like, you know what? <laughs> you know what, fam, it is. Uh, because we talk about the biases that are laden within the technologies that are based upon their creators. Uh, if a black AI sounds like a black person because it's made by a black person, it probably is a black AI. And given that the majority of our baseline um, virtual assistants like a Siri or Alexa are, are, are white and female already. There's already a racial and gender, genderized component to artificial intelligence, at least kind of talking head gen, uh, artificial intelligence entities. And so this became important to me because, uh, because part of the transhumanist kind of trajectory is to do away with race anyways. Uh, one of the claims that human biodiversity is not important and we can all kind of band together under one banner of progress. Uh, but again, we're leaving behind cultures, we're leaving behind the, the specific wisdoms that come from uh, locales by privileging one particular one over all the rest. I think it's important uh, for not only black blackness to be brought into this digital AI space, but also all the other iterations of the global majority. Uh, because again, we cannot leave behind the wisdoms that come from these cultural spaces and the bodies that, that inhabit them. And so when we talk about Seeker's mental health space, or component, right? Uh, if we look at, I think we're still in this, this part of the conversation around uh, mental health in black communities where it's, uh, we're, we're still attempting to destigmatize. We're not fully at the space where it's normal, right? Where it's like, all right, you know, it's cool if my, if my homie or my friend has uh, a therapist, but the question is, do I have one, right? And how, how you know, how comfortable am I, um, you know, talking about how I feel in my emotions and, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and so with that being said, right, there's there's also just the, the lack of um, the, the ways in which black communities do not actually engage in uh, the resources that can be useful here. So one of the one of the goals that we're trying to do is is find a scalable uh, a, a method to reach as much of the various black communities as possible while simultaneously making it affordable. Um, and so one of the goals is to make sure black folks feel seen and heard. And that's why it is a black AI so folks feel comfortable uh, and feel represented back onto themselves or reflected back onto themselves through the, 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 the conversational dialogue. You know, and again, uh, creating a particular 
digitized ritual that allows for people not only to go inside and explore themselves, but to come away with a different kind of um, a different kind of outcome altogether. So most of the conversation is about three to three to seven minutes, but they often have a lot of kind of meaning, meaningful and lasting impact, you know, even within that short amount of time. Well, you you know me well enough to know that theism is not my thing, and and the church really isn't my thing. But but I I like what you're saying in that you're you're pulling on language that black secular folks are beginning in an increasing fashion to recognize the importance of, right? So you get black secular folks talking about spirituality, not pointing to some sort of mystical union with something out there, but as a way of expressing deep and profound connection, right? You get black secular folk who are deeply concerned with normalizing mental well-being, mental health, right? Taking care of ourselves. And, and so I really appreciate that and that you, you, you take these two and you tie them to a more positive relationship to technology. And I, just, I think there's a lot to be said concerning that. Has there been any pushback in terms of your project? No, I think for so. I mean, <laughs> there's the immediate pushback of just like folks being skeptical. It's like you know, I think when kind of in the beginning of our conversation, when it's like, all right, there's this, this, these are there are these dystopian views around artificial intelligence. It's like, is it watching me? Is it stealing my information? You know, I cannot trust it. And it's like, uh, one, we're not stealing information. Uh, one of the things that we're fighting for is data ownership. And so. You know, we're in this fight so that you can own your own your data. And once we get to this space, whatever you want to do with it, if you want to leverage it for your own money, so on and so forth, this is all something for you to do. But if you want to keep it all, you know, sacred and you know, tied up to yourself and in a vault somewhere, that's also per perfectly fine. Um, and then, you know, there's other folks who are just like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know enough about it. And so I think the initial pushback is mainly the hesitance around it. And so I think that's part of the reason why we're really be kind of de uh, delving into like this kind of a consumer education piece, just kind of letting folks know like where it came from. Like it came from a black dude, <laughs> and <it's, laughs> and and not only that, but like you know, this is it's it's meant to be something that protects you and also allows for you to take what you what you've given to it and benefit and and build off of that in whatever way you choose. Um, and so, yes, we have received pushback, but I think when folks have been able to get into it, I think it's it's been able to change folks' minds. And, and, and that's the part that I think I like about it the most or I'm grateful for. OK, so so in terms of AI, what worries you most moving forward, right? kind of thinking future? What worries you most about AI? That enough uh, black folks and folks from the global majority are not going to get in or uh, in time to really shift uh, and, and form what this thing is gonna become. Like we can do all of this work out of the Institute and we can make these partnerships, but then what if, what if, what if it doesn't take you know, root in industry, right? What if, you know, like it's something that somebody, like a company buys and we thought they had all the good intentions, but they shove it and they continue doing whatever they do, we were doing before, maybe at a faster rate, right? And so like, I think that, I think, at this stage in the game, the potential is still wide, right? Uh, but my, my, I think if, if I had to go worst case scenario, it would be that we don't get enough folks in here uh, who are willing to do the work, right, to, to set us up. Uh, and by us, I mean folks in the global majority, right? More than 80% of the world is not white.
if enough folks are not getting into this and right like i mean anti-blackness is is pervasive in 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 every single one of us in in many ways and so how do we then make sure we deal with this in a way that does not uh, perpetuate right the the very same things that we're attempting to work against and so i think that's uh i think that's my immediate thing but i and and i was thinking about this last night it's like what if what if we get everything we want and it still ends up being (laughs) being something else that you know that we don't that we did not you know plan for and i think like that's in some ways that's the goal because you can't control the outcome. But I'm also part of me also wonders like I'd rather have that future that is that seems a bit more um, uncertain than than a future where we where we speed up the rate at which kind of white supremacy moves through technology. So last question for you, Philip. What are you most excited about when you think about? AI moving forward. Depending on who you are, you probably you know either like this or, or hate it or love it or hate it. But I think the ability for people to stay in community with folks who have not been here even after they're gone, right? Like I know like there's folks who buy the keychains where they take like voicemails from their loved ones who have, who have gone on to the other you know the other side and they play them back, right? Uh, you know just to hear their voice one more time. You know, but what is it, what happens then, you know, when if, if you get them to read enough, you know, off a sheet of paper where you can synthesize their voice and they can respond to anything um, while also like taking in, you know, some of the 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 key qualities of, of their personality. Right. So that so that you can kind of kind of constantly stay in kind of conversation with them. Right. And so to me, it's this it's the I think it's I'm ex- I'm really excited about just being able to to connect with loved ones again uh, in this way. And and so, yeah. Because it's, I think it's something like we talk about being able to connect with the ancestors and so forth. Like I, I give an incredible amount of weight to the histories of those traditions, and I also want to add to that tradition by giving folks the ability to to have something that they can hold on to and hear, and you know what I mean, and be able to to feel as a result um, of like hearing their actual physical voice or you know audio audio audible voice, um, and just whatever comfort right and. Uh, and connection comes from that. Thanks so much. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Philip Butler. My brother, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate the work you're doing. Folks, I'm Anthony Penn. You've been listening to Pen Drop. There's more to talk about, so check us out again. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Penn is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at OnlySky.com. Media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.